This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The book of Ecclesiastes has often been taken as a counsel of despair, as a non-Christian view of the world. There is an alternative reading of Ecclesiastes, however. Consider that it is included in God's Word, and thus we regard it as inspired by God's Holy Spirit for His people. Is it likely that the Holy Spirit inspired a non-Christian or sub-Christian view of the world? Do we really need that in the canon? Non-Christian views of the world are, and always have been, readily available, even in the garden, from the serpent. Further, Ecclesiastes is categorized as part of the wisdom literature in Scripture. And if it is the counsel of unbelief and despair, it is hardly wisdom. It would be foolishness. The goal and function of wisdom literature in Scripture is to help believers be more wise and to live more wisely. John Fesco joins us to help us connect the book of Ecclesiastes to wise Christian living. He is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a number of books, including Where Wisdom is Found, Christ in Ecclesiastes. This title is found with other faculty titles at the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Good to be here. Just in case the listener has not listened to every single episode in this series, and I know I've asked you this before, but we're talking about wisdom. Give us your working definition of wisdom. I think generally speaking, we can say that wisdom is applying the law of God to our daily lives when the law doesn't give us situation-specific guidance. And I think uh, one of the the best examples of this that I can think of from the Bible comes from the incident where the two prostitutes came to Solomon disputing over who had the living child. There was no part of the law that said, here's what you do when you have two women fighting over such a circumstance or such a situation. And so Solomon you know, uses wisdom, and he says, let's divide the child in two. And of course, he wasn't intending on doing that, but uh, when he did that, the true mother was revealed. And the narrative there in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 28, said, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so here he was applying the principles of truth and justice to this situation where there was no specific guidance. So at least generally speaking, that's how I define wisdom is applying the principles of the law when there is no explicit guideline. It's interesting that you went to that example because that's one of the examples that we think of when we think of wisdom. So just for a moment, let's dive into that since you went to that specific case. Sure. What is it that Solomon did that was so wise? Why? In other words, it's one thing to say that everyone recognized it as wise and that it was wise, and there's no question about that. But what is it about what he did and the strategy he used to get at the truth that was wise? You know, I think as I look at that passage in the sweep of redemptive history, up until that point, you saw godly people, for example, I think relying upon the umim and the thumim. They would say, okay, God, we're not quite sure what to do here. Let's 
for lack of a better term, let's roll the holy dice and you tell us <laughs> what's right, what's wrong, what decisions should we make. So here Solomon doesn't bring out the umim and the thumim. Rather, he makes a decision himself, and he did so relying upon God, relying upon wisdom, God-given wisdom. And in this respect, I think he's ultimately foreshadowing wisdom incarnate. He's foreshadowing Christ himself as the wise and just king, one who is able to determine between right and wrong and do so wisely. And he did so prayerfully, right? Correct. Certainly he was thinking, and so his intellective or his intellectual Mm -hmm. faculty Mm -hmm. was operating, but he was also making this decision, framing this strategy in the context of having called on the Lord Mm -hmm. and, and having asked for the gift of wisdom. Right, absolutely. I think that, you know, when Solomon was told by the Lord, you know, ask for anything, and he could have asked for riches, he could have asked for might over his enemies, he could have asked for political favor or power, but instead he asked for wisdom. So you're right, yeah, absolutely. It's a prayerful reliance upon God for wisdom uh, when facing such difficult circumstances. And he used his senses, Mm -hmm. he looked at these two people Mm -hmm. who were before him making a competing claim. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are tools that we have today, like DNA tests, that he didn't have. Mm -hmm. So he had to look at them. He had to listen to them. So he had to use his senses. Mm -hmm. He had to believe his senses, what his senses were telling him. And he had to make perceptions, or he had perceptions, and even, we might say, uh, intuitions about what is more likely, who is more likely telling the truth. And and Mm -hmm. it seems like he did it on the spot. Mm -hmm. Do do you have an opinion about that? I mean, I think there's something to be said for a godly intuition, uh, you know, that it's informed by Scripture, uh, but when there's a lack of direction, a lack of explicit instruction as to how to answer a certain situation, yeah, there's godly intuition, you know, intuition informed by the principles of the Word of God. And I think in that circumstance, you, you certainly see that. You know, it's like the Proverbs say, do you answer the fool according to his folly, or you don't answer the fool according to his folly? Well, it, it depends upon the situation, circumstances, and I think godly intuition is to know when is the right course of action to take, yeah. Michael Polanyi is a very interesting 20th century writer who was a scientist who became a philosopher of science, and mm-hmm. and one of the things that he wanted to say to sort of the lab-coated priests of the age was, listen, there is a powerful subjective element in everything that we do, Mm -hmm. and there are things that we know that are true, that are real, that cannot necessarily be reproduced in a laboratory. And when you formed your experiments, you excluded some things, you included some things, and and he wrote a a long book explaining exactly what they left out and what they included, and, and he sort of goes through this volume and blows up Mm -hmm. some of the more famous scientific experiments in the first part of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, and shows how subjective the whole process is, so that it's not quite what it's sometimes represented. And the point of all this is to say that there are things that we know, and the classic example is the musician who teaches another musician how to play, or a luthier who teaches an apprentice how to make an instrument, there are things that musicians and luthiers know that can only be transmitted through experience and through skills that are accumulated over time to some degree by intuition where we learn how to pick the right wood Mm -hmm. for an instrument, not 
in the way that we normally think of science, but through a kind of intuition that's very analogous to wisdom. Mm -hmm. There's a certain skill that you develop over time. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, You know, there's the old saying, I guess, that says that there's knowledge and then there's wisdom. We can accumulate a lot of data, but we don't necessarily use that data in the right way or to the right ends. And so when we're talking about wisdom, it's taking the knowledge that we have, and you could maybe characterize it as textbook knowledge, and then applying it to situations that uh, don't always line up with the text. And pastors have to do that all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're we're faced all the time with circumstances that either weren't described for us in seminary or are not clearly delineated in Scripture or in the Confession Mm -hmm. or even in some helpful book. Yeah, no, you're, you're, yeah, that's, so that's correct. We have to sit down with elders, and we make house visits, we pray, and we make the best judgment we can based on all that we know, mm-hmm. and uh, that requires wisdom. We don't try to teach our students about every possible situation they'll ever face. We try to give them the principles and skills that they will need to be wise mm-hmm. in their exercise of their pastoral office. No, you're right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. All right. You have written on Ecclesiastes, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the reasons why I ask you to do this episode. So let's orient the listener who wrote Ecclesiastes, and let's do that stuff so that we can start connecting Ecclesiastes to wisdom. That's a good question. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? It depends on who you ask. There are some folks, at least historically, that want to say that it was Solomon. But from what study I've done in the book, the book doesn't explicitly identify who the author is. And then in talking with some of my uh, Old Testament colleagues here, at the seminary, they say that the Hebrew in the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't quite fit uh, the period that would be required for Solomon's lifetime. So that, for example, it would be something akin to saying that the book of Ecclesiastes is written in 21st century English when Solomon was speaking King James English back in the 17th century. Uh, The Hebrew doesn't line up. So in that respect, one of the things that I told my congregation is, is that even though we don't know who specifically wrote the book of Ecclesiastes other than how he identifies himself as the preacher, or in Hebrew, Kohelet, that's uh, what some commentators will call him just by his Hebrew name, that it's a lot like the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews specifically. We have a lot of theories and ideas, but just because we don't know who wrote the specific book doesn't necessarily at all uh, undercut its canonicity, its authority, or the uh, importance of the book that it, it bears for us. So, we're talking about a book that was written by the preacher, whoever he may be, and uh, sometime late in Israel's history, and uh, doing so at least as some sort of kingly figure. We know that. He's some sort of kingly or princely figure. And uh, beyond that, we don't have a whole lot more information other than what the text supplies for us. And help us understand the word Kohelet. It has sometimes been translated as the convener of the covenant assembly. Mm -hmm. Do you accept that? Yeah, I think that that's that's right. Uh, You know, I mean, you have that Hebrew term kahal, which is where we get the term congregation uh, or even church in our own day. And so Kohelet is related to that and that he's, the, like you said, the convener. Uh, and hence, I think a lot of English translations render that term as the preacher, uh, so that he is the one that would stand before uh, the gathering of the people of Israel, the, the people of God, and he would proclaim to them uh, the word of God. And so in that 
that respect, that gives us some insight as to the nature of, of the author. Verse 1, chapter 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So he is a kingly figure, but as to which specific kingly figure, we're not exactly sure. And of course, the prototypical covenant assembly, you know, we think of Israel gathered at the foot of Horeb or Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is an official assembly mm-hmm. of the national covenant people sure. before the face of God. Yes. And so this person has status within Israel. Right. Now, not just some guy making observations about the nature of things. Right. I think that, uh, you know, to talk about it in terms of the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, we could say that uh, there are prophetic and kingly elements to this person, that there's an official capacity there. And then you could even arguably say that in some sense, maybe even priestly, you know, function, maybe not perhaps specific office, but at least certainly priestly function. But yeah, I think that that's right. And it is the case that there are many books in the Hebrew Bible, the exact authorship we don't know. Correct, right. And so, just because we don't know specifically the authorship of Koheleth or Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. doesn't mean that, it, as you said earlier, it's not canonical. Otherwise, we'd have to go through and reduce the number of biblical books <laughs> by a good deal, right? Yes, I think you're All right. right. So, that's yeah. a poor principle on which to sort this sort of thing out. Sure. And one other minor thing, just so the listener isn't confused, there is another volume that is sometimes quoted by Christian writers and others called Ecclesiasticus. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same volume as Ecclesiastes. Correct. Ecclesiasticus is part of the Apocrypha, or, or uh, in very basic terms, it's the, that part of the Bible that has Bell and the Dragon and Maccabees. And that as a kid, I wondered, why don't we have cool books of the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bible? Like sounds, that. sounds like something that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it, that book is not part of the canon. Okay, and so these are what are sometimes called uh, extra-canonical, or as you say, apocryphal books Mm -hmm. that are not in the Hebrew Bible, but have been included sometimes in editions of Scripture, but were not uh, accepted or received either by the Jews as canonical, nor by some very important early church fathers. Correct. And even don't show up in early canonical lists of Holy Scripture. So it's uh, it's not the case that... um, there were books in the Bible that, for example, in the Reformation, mean-spirited Protestants went around and cutting them out. Right, exactly. Now, yeah. Okay. Ecclesiastes is different from Ecclesiasticus. All right. Well, that's, and that, that's confusing yeah. because you see these you things, they think, well, maybe that's the Latin right. text of Ecclesiastes or something. Right. All right. So, we've talked a little bit about this, but let's go into it in a little more detail. Why is Ecclesiastes in the canon? I think we agree that Ecclesiastes uh, or Kohelet has an official function Mm -hmm. in the people of Israel. If that's true, that sort of leads us in a certain direction. But some people think that this volume is a non-Christian account of the world intended to instruct us, in effect, how not to see the world. Do you accept that view? And if not, what's wrong with it? Yeah, no, I think that... uh you know, I, I think that the way that we should look at Ecclesiastes is, first of all, that it's canonical, and at least in general terms, it's part of the Christian canon. It's a, definitely a Christian way of looking at the world. That being said, uh, there are a lot of things in the book that are challenging. I do not want to underestimate uh, how challenging some of these passages are. I can remember as I was preparing a sermon series uh, on this book that, boy, there were sometimes I was uh, in knots trying to figure out <laughs> what I was going to do with the the passage in front of me. 
Let's stop there because that's important. Just because something is God's word and something is holy scripture and it is true, and just because God's word is sufficiently clear, we call that perspicuity, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that God's word is universally clear mm-hmm. in the same way all the time. Right, correct. No, yeah, I, it's it's uh, it, it's challenging. I don't know how it ranks in terms of the most challenging books of the Bible, but it's certainly up there, you know. In the... I mean, you've got Job, you've got Ecclesiastes. Yeah. I mean, those are both very difficult. Yeah. As a preacher, what specifically was difficult? I mean, think back to when you were preaching through this to your congregation. Mm-hmm. You're sitting down, you have your Hebrew Bible open, you have your English Bible open, you've done your basic work, you're trying to craft a sermon. Mm-hmm. What was it that was so difficult? I think that most people in the church, or at least a good portion of them, look at the Bible, look at the law of God in terms of the law of retribution. Uh, An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If I obey, then God will bless me. If I disobey, I will suffer some sort of punishment, some sort of consequences, so that if I live my life in accordance with God's word, things will go well, and if I don't live in accordance with his word, well then things will probably go poorly for me. Now, to a certain extent, sometimes that's true. You know, I'd want to talk about the specific circumstances as to what example are we talking about. I mean, obviously, if I go and live immorally, there are going to be consequences to that. But on the other hand, there are times in life, and uh, the scriptures, I think, acknowledge this, that what happens if you follow the word of God, you obey, you seek to be godly, and things still don't go well for you? It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. The psalmist cries out frequently, Lord, I've been righteous. Lord, I've obeyed you. I have served you. And I am in a pit. Uh, My enemies are surrounding me, right? So it's not the case that if righteous, then necessarily prosperous all the time. Right, exactly. And, you know, as you brought it up before, Job, I think, is the classic example in the Old Testament of this, or at least one of them, that here he is. He's a righteous man. God commends him to Satan for his piety and his righteousness. And yet, he nevertheless suffers. And so I think that I wanted my congregation, as I preached through this book, to feel the weight of the disconnect or the crushing oppression of when it seems as if things don't go right. I wanted them to feel that and not just immediately uh, give them the answer, uh, because so often in life, you know, to use worship as an example, uh, so much of contemporary worship these days is all about joy and happiness, and I'm going to clap my hands and I'm going to be happy, uh, and I certainly don't want to try to rob anybody of joy, but on the other hand, what do you do when you are are depressed? What do you do when things aren't going well for yourself? What if you don't feel like being joyful because you're suffering from significant illness? You know, what happens when things aren't going right? And, you know, I think the way a lot of people answer that question is they say, well, you must have secret sin in your life. And uh, I remember hearing that on occasion from time to time, and I would try to instruct people to say, well, 
that might not be the case. It's like with Jesus, uh, the disciples, and the blind man. Lord, who sinned, the blind man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. So, in other words, there's something else at work in the world. And long story short, it's that if you have no place for the righteous man who suffers, then you have no place for Christ. And that, I think, ultimately is... over that, because that's a hugely important point. Because Jesus is not only God the Son incarnate, Mm -hmm. but he was and is and remains a truly righteous, obedient man Mm -hmm. who nevertheless, Mm -hmm. through his life, lived a very difficult, even in some respects, miserable existence. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man, Jesus, has nowhere to lay his Mm -hmm. head. And it wasn't through any fault Mm -hmm. of his own wasn't because he wasn't industrious. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because he wasn't obedient. And so that's important because righteous people do really suffer in this world. You're right. And that's what I wanted my congregation to grasp because we have such a simple if obedient, then blessed kind of understanding of things. And I certainly don't want to encourage anybody to say, well, then what's the point? And I think that's one of the big issues that Ecclesiastes is wrestling with is, well, if the righteous died just like the wicked, then what is the point? What is the point? And I think that that's what makes Ecclesiastes... It sounds wrong when I say it, but that's what makes Ecclesiastes so relevant. It's not that it was ever irrelevant, keep in mind. But, uh, you know, today with the postmodern kind of feel that we have, the vibe out there of so many people questioning everything, questioning authority, I was so overjoyed to preach through this book because I felt like it was giving answers to the kinds of questions that people are asking today. And so I really wanted my congregation to uh, to wrestle with that, and sometimes it wasn't easy trying to figure out what Ecclesiastes was getting at, but hopefully I had some idea as to what he was getting at and was able to point my congregation in that direction. And it is true that the righteous and the wicked do both die in mm-hmm. the ordinary providence of God. Mm-hmm. So, Pastor, and before we move on to the last part of our discussion, sure, what is the point? What's the difference How do you encourage your congregation to think of themselves and the world? How are we different? How how are believers different? Sure. I think that when we look at Ecclesiastes, you know, I think some of the the more famous lines that come out of it would come from the first chapter, where Ecclesiastes says in chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, it seems like, okay, futility, vanity, but there's a connecting point, I think, a ligament, if you will, to the book of Romans, where Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Now, what's interesting there is that is the only time that Paul uses this term, I think, but it's the same term that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for vanity. It's the same term so that here Paul says, for the creation was subjected to vanity or futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that though the righteous die, though the wicked die, in a sense alike, that doesn't mean, therefore, that for the Christian that it's all meaningless, but rather with the corrective lenses of Christ and Scripture, when we look out upon the world, we can make sense of the seeming appearance of futility, as the preacher calls it, as life under the sun, so that for the wicked, yes, 
It is vanity. It is futility because they have failed to turn to Christ who is incarnate wisdom, you know, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of the wisdom of God, as Paul says in Colossians 2. And I think that that's the point. And I think, admittedly, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, lets that dark fog of vanity just hang over the congregation for a while. But at times, the clouds clear to give a brief glimpse as to the final fulfillment of wisdom in Christ. And uh, it's sketchy, it's shadowy, but once the New Testament, you know, you open up the New Testament and you see the incarnation of Christ, I think, to borrow a phrase, reading our Bibles backwards, we can make a whole lot of sense out of what Ecclesiastes is saying and doing. So we live in a fallen world, but believers do not live in that fallen world without hope. Correct. Because wisdom has become incarnate, mm-hmm. because there is truth, there is reality, and there is heaven. Correct. There is glory, mm-hmm. there will be consummation. Mm-hmm. So we live in a fallen world, and we coexist with unbelievers in this sort of fog, to use the metaphor that you used, but not as those who have no light at the end and who don't understand the nature of the fog. We understand that this is not normal. Right. This is not the way things were meant to be. Right. And that there will be a reckoning, Mm -hmm. and the fog will clear, and this is not ultimate. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a there's a passage there that says that, you know, where the king built gardens and he, you know, accumulated wealth and he had all of these things. And then he became discouraged because he realized that, well, I'm going to end up giving all of this stuff to somebody else when I die. So that if you are placing all of the weight and worth and value of your life and your labors into life under the sun, in other words, life just in this world, then it is vanity, it is futility. And that's foolishness. Exactly, that's foolishness. But if you recognize that all you're doing is to the glory of God, and that ultimately it's for His glory and for the benefit and edification of the church, then all of a sudden, all of your labors take on a significantly different meaning and a weight and value, a value that comes through and in Christ. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. If one is investing his life or her life in the eternal, that's different. Mm-hmm. Two people can both own BMWs, mm-hmm. but if one person's life is di- and identity is defined mm-hmm. by having a BMW and all that represents, and another person happens to drive a BMW, mm-hmm. but that's not who they are. Right. They could just as well drive a 67 Volkswagen. Right. Their identity would be the same right? Yeah. because there's a different perspective on the nature of existence mm-hmm. and the meaning and who I am and all of those things. All right. So how do we connect then? And I think we've already begun to do right. it, but let's tie that together. Yeah. How do we connect Ecclesiastes and the perspective this book offers about life under the sun mm-hmm to the nature of wisdom. I think that, uh, you know, what I would want to do is connect it to Christ, obviously, in the sense that here you have the righteous man, he's suffering, but his suffering is invested with meaning and significance, and this ultimately gives way to his resurrection, glorification, and ascension. So that when Paul, I think, makes that seemingly strange statement at first, where he says that I am filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, he's not saying that Christ's suffering is somehow insufficient or somehow lacking for his salvation. But rather, I think he's saying that the head has suffered, and so now he, Paul, as a part of the body, 
the body must suffer. Just as the head suffered and was glorified, so too now the body, the church, of which Paul was a part, must suffer and then will be glorified. And so that when we look at life, and you see this, I think, in all of its very real assessment, I think, it's a very, Ecclesiastes offers us a very sober assessment of life, making observations such as, you know, the righteous die just as equally as the wicked, or in trying to pursue wisdom not for the sake of Christ, but rather for the sake of self-advancement. Even the preacher says, even pursuing wisdom, generally speaking, is kind of foolishness as well, because even the wise die just like the fool. So that divorced from Christ, all of a sudden, life takes on a completely different cast and a completely different meaning. It becomes, as the preacher says, vanity. So in that sense, I think what the preacher presents with us is that, does that mean, therefore, you just throw up your hands and give up? Do you give in to fatalism, for example? Uh, one of the most famous songs, I think, about fatalism is uh, Doris Day's Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Do you just give up and say, you know, I don't care, you know, obviously it doesn't matter what I do, or if what Paul says there in Romans chapter 8, that futility is giving way to the hope that comes through Christ and through the resurrection, and that through God's providence, he ordains as the Westminster Confession would say, whatsoever comes to pass, so that all of these events in our lives are stripped of its vanity and are invested with meaning because of our connection to Christ. And I think that's the broader picture, the bigger message that we find in terms of Ecclesiastes and its place in the canon and its connection to Christ. Is there a place in Ecclesiastes where you see the light sort of breaking in, where Koheleth, the convener of the covenant assembly, sees in the midst of his struggle and as you say, you know, just reading through Ecclesiastes, you can see him really agonizing over the meaning of life, uh, the significance of it all, right? And we do face that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in my early 50s and working for uh, you know decades now, paying bills and doing all the things that, that we do every day as part of this life. And one does wonder, well, what does it all mean? What does it all amount to? Mm-hmm. You know, have I wasted my life? Presumably, the number of my years between mm-hmm. now and the grave mm-hmm. are fewer than the number of years I've already passed. Sure. So sure. the end is closer than the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Right? Those thoughts have crossed my own mind, yeah. Well, th- th- and, and that's a reality. Now, if, if the listener is in his early 20s, that might seem a long way away, and perhaps it is. Mm-hmm. But, dear listener, perhaps it isn't. Mm-hmm. You have to cross the street today, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And the moment you do that, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Your life is in the ordinary providence of God. Your life is in some jeopardy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, life is but a vapor. Yeah. So, w- with all those things in mind, is there a place in Ecclesiastes where he sees a glimmer of hope and truth? Mm-hmm. And, and meaning. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there are a couple of points or a couple of places that Ecclesiastes talks about it. And in particular, I think it's when he talks about the simple enjoyment of enjoying the blessings of life, food, you know, companionship, those types of things. I think that in the one sense, Ecclesiastes is elevating the value of the ordinary and the mundane as things that we might just take for granted as just being common. But if life apart from Christ truly is vain, 
then those things are meaningless. But if we see life in the light of Christ, then all of a sudden these small, seemingly insignificant things take on much greater value, I think. So that's the important thing. So that if you've ever been really, really hungry, food has never tasted so good. It's like I heard a saying, the best sauce for food is desire. And uh, one of the best hamburgers I've ever had in my entire life was a quarter pounder with cheese on a day that I'd been like five or six hours since I eaten. Uh, that thing probably didn't taste all that good, objectively speaking. Yeah, ordinarily. Yeah, but that day, because I was so hungry, that was one of the best tasting burgers, hands down, I've ever had in my life. And I think that's an aspect as to what Ecclesiastes is getting out of, is take account and count your blessings of these simple things in life. On the flip side of the coin, I think he's saying to the one who would try to accumulate wealth, to find meaning and significance just only in this earthly existence or life under the sun, saying, don't think that your accomplishments are all that important or significant. As the saying goes, nobody takes a U-Haul to heaven. (laughs) Death and taxes is a great equalizer. Mostly, at least in the death part, yes. Maybe not so much in the taxes. (laughs) But don't think so much of that. And no matter what happens... Trust God. Trust God. I think, you know, it's it's a bit of a jump to the end, obviously, but when the book concludes the end of the matter, and this is chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I think that's one of the most important statements in all of the book, and I think it really summarizes. It's kind of like, whatever you see, whatever happens, however much of a disconnect there may seem to be, fear God trust him, obey his word, and leave the results to God. And I think as we look at that in the light of the New Testament, it's nothing that God himself has not done already in the sense that he himself, in the person of his son, has entered into history, entered into providence. He has subjected himself to his own providence, Christ subjecting himself to the Father's will, so that he knows in a very real way what it means to live the life, if you will, of Ecclesiastes. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.